invite you as you do so to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. We'll begin reading in chapter 2, but we're going to be extending into chapter 3 this morning. Begin reading in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 23. We'll be reading through chapter 3, verse 5. And as is my custom, I'll read out of the New King James Version. God's Word declares, How can you say, I am not polluted? I have not gone after the balls. See your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift dromedary, breaking loose in her ways, a wild donkey used to the wilderness that sniffs at the wind in her desire, in her time of mating. Who can turn her away? All those who seek her will not weary themselves in her month. They will find her. Withhold your foot from being unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, there is no hope. No, for I have loved aliens, and after them I will go. As a thief is ashamed when he is found out, so is the house of Israel ashamed, they and their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets, saying to a tree, You are my father, and to a stone you gave birth to me. For they have turned their back to me and not their face, but in the time of their trouble they will say, Arise and save us. But where are your gods that you have made for yourselves? Let them arise, if they can save you in the time of your trouble. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. Will you, why will you plead with me? You all have transgressed against me, says the Lord. In vain I have chastened your children. They receive no correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. O generation, see the word of the Lord. I, have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of darkness? Why do my people say, we are lords, we will come no more to you? Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Why do you beautify your way to seek love? Therefore you have also taught the wicked women your ways. Also on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but plainly on all these things. Yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead my case against you, because you say, I have not sinned. Why do you gad about so much to change your way? Also you shall be ashamed of Egypt, as you are ashamed of Assyria. Indeed, you will go forth from him with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected your trusted allies, and you will not prosper by them. They say... If a man divorces his wife, and she goes from him and becomes another man's, will he return to her again? Would not the land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and sea, where you have not lain with men. By the road you have sat for them, like an Arabian in the wilderness, and you have polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. Therefore the showers have been held. And there has been no latter rain. You have had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. Will you not from this time cry to me, My father, you are the guide of my youth. Will he remain angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you are able. Well, as you likely recall, we have been working the last couple weeks now on the development of God's argument, his his court case, if you will, where he presents his accusation and the evidence uh, against Judah. And we're going to uh, extend that and really look into, as he focuses on that actual verbiage, 
when we get into chapter 3, as he uh, lays out the evidence before uh, them through Jeremiah of the reasonableness and the necessity of their coming judgment, but also of the tenderness and the kindness of his offer to avoid it. That really this is not an irrational God that is out there just waiting to strike someone with lightning um, or to make your life miserable. That is not God's desire, goal, ambition. Uh, We don't find that anywhere in those that would portray God for uh, executing justice um, as being an ogre. Uh, that is, can't wait to do injury to people, uh, have not really given God's word a serious read and are not really giving consideration to all that he has done. Of course, we on this side of Calvary uh, focus on his grace, his love, and his mercy because we have seen it personified in the work of Jesus Christ. We have seen his love exercised in its fullest, that uh, he... N- made the means for our deliverance in completely. Um, but I think we would be wrong to think that somehow the Old Testament saints did not have that concept, or the people of God, or of Israel, or even of the nations for that matter, did not have that kind of access to that knowledge. And in fact, God is going overboard to uh, make sure they do have that knowledge, they do have access to it, and we're going to see that as he talks about the work of his prophets throughout the book of Jeremiah, and including, of course, the work of Jeremiah himself. But as we see God laying out his argument, this is why you are coming under my wrath. Uh, and again, we have a difficult time uh, disassociating uh, these terms, that we have a wrathful indignant God who is very angry with Judah, who is still reasonable and is patient and is merciful. And to us, um, we have a difficult time being those two things simultaneously. Let's just be honest. Um, Usually when people lose their temper, if you will, become wrathful, um, a lot of their common sense flies out the window sometimes. A lot of their capacity to control themselves goes. And so we tell people, well, when you get really angry, count to 10, or if you need to, 20, or, or something to bring your mind back in and re-engage it. Um, but in our society where affections drive men more than reason, uh, they tend to just put what's just common sense away and they just operate on the basis of their rage and so we don't we don't necessarily fully appreciate or really understand by experience the idea of a god that is enraged and yet um is very reasonable and is very patient and is um very careful and deliberate uh, we tend to associate that kind of wrath, that kind of anger, with uh, a spontaneousness, with with uh, one who is out of control, and and uh, certainly that's most of our experiences. And so we come to God's word here, and we need to uh, recognize that God is all these things simultaneously, and it really comes out in a passage like we had before us this morning, uh, if we extend it on into chapter 3 particularly, but God has 
uh, in the midst of laying out his argument where um, some of the most infuriating facets of being judge are brought out. Um, God, in the end of chapter 2, and we began and really looked at it somewhat last week, begins to bring forth uh, what, for me, is maybe the epitome of frustration of trying to execute justice, whether it's in your house or in society, whether it's in church, uh, whether uh, it is just on the street um, of executing justice uh, even when you catch someone in the act of doing a criminal thing or a uh, a wrong thing, and uh, <laughs> it's infuriating, and it and it just makes the execution of justice uh, that much more difficult to do it in a reasonable manner because the de- declaration is so unreasonable. So here is God laying out His rationale to explain and express why it is necessary that Judah come under his judgment, under the painful discipline of his wrath that is uh, still some time away. Uh, It's still to come down the road a generation, but it is certainly on its way, uh, unless they give full-hearted repentance. Uh, And so, here in the midst of him laying this out, Uh, we find Judah's response uh, infuriating. They're just adding fuel to the fire. And this we want to look at uh, this morning and to guard ourselves from, but then also to see right in the midst of that, perhaps the most infuriating part of of Judah's uh, relationship with God or lack thereof, um, here settled in that, we have one of the most tender and gracious, merciful acts or declarations of God. In the most infuriating declarations of Israel, we have them juxtapositioned against God's most merciful declarations. Before we do that, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word before us. And we pray you might give us understanding of it, not only intellectual that we might know what the words say and mean and put them together and the themes and all that, but, Lord, that we might know them personally, that we might bring them into our heart and our life and, and see that their purpose is to transform us into your image uh, and to guard us from sin, uh, to guard us from error, and to uh, move us uh, in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And Lord, we pray that we might not be stubborn-hearted, hard-hearted, cold, that we might not have the the unwillingness to blush at our sin, to be ashamed when it is called for. And Lord, we pray you might give us that spirit this morning of genuineness. You might remove the unwillingness to admit sin. Lord, that we might uh, respond to this message better than the recipients did in Jeremiah's day. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have just concluded one of the highest holy days of the year in America. Uh, And 
I would, in my estimation, it is the highest holy day of the year in the United States. We've just passed that. We have the next highest holy day in the United States coming up in January or is it February this year. Um, but we have just passed the highest holy day uh, of our culture, and that is uh, not on Thursday. It was, well, some of it was on, spilled over. Now it's spilled over into Thursday because one day isn't enough anymore to celebrate our materialism. And so we are in the midst of this weekend of high celebration called Black Friday. I didn't realize um, how significant the term had really taken over uh, uh, media until I was at a hotel last night in Carlsbad, or night before last, sorry, Night before last in Carlsbad, and we were watching the news, and I haven't seen broadcast TV for a long time, and every commercial was big letters, Black Friday, Black Friday, Black Friday, Black Friday. And I was like, oh, this is oppressive. Um, but it is just being hammered into us. This is, and then in the newspaper and on, uh, we see that this has taken a hold of us, and it is a celebration of consumerism, a celebration of consumptionism, uh, and really what is ultimately just materialism, that somehow, if I get the best deal and acquire enough stuff, even if I don't really need that stuff, um, this is going to make me happy. And it is our worship. And I cannot think of any more worshipful things than what happened this week in our society, that people were willing to uh, give up food, give up uh, time with family, give up sleep. Um, they were willing to fast from all of that to go and to engage in the corporate worship at the big box stores, at the malls, at wherever their favorite stuff is. And so we find their commitment is there. And If you think that there are no church people involved in that, um, you are grossly mistaken. Uh, and so we find ourselves fully engaged and fully uh, participating often in the high holy days, even as they intrude on true times of worship uh, to the point that uh, we have people complaining about having to retailers having to work on Saturday, on, on Thursday. Um, and yet, none of them have a problem working on Sunday, do they? Interesting enough, because family is still above God in our echelon of, of gods that we have in our society. Well, here's the frustrating part of it, is that even as I communicate that and declare that as the true false god of our land, um, I'm going to have a whole host of people come and say, oh no, we don't worship our stuff. No, that's not who we are. We're just there trying to be good stewards and being frugal, and, and we're trying to get the good deal of something I really need. And at which point, I don't know whether to laugh at them or to strangle them. Because the fact is, is that your needs are very minimal biblically, um, and we are well, well, well beyond our needs in terms of... Uh, what is required of life, even within our society, uh, that we are just out there having to get these things. And we make a declaration very similar to Judah 
that keeps saying and keeps saying and keeps repeating, and they believe that they say it often enough that somehow God is going to believe them that we are not defiling ourselves with this world. No, I am able somehow to function and move within their high holy days, participate in all that is there, and allow the covetousness and the discontentment to lay hold of my heart, um, and I can do all of that without being touched by this worship of materials. Uh, and somehow I, can, I think I can guard myself sufficiently that I will not be involved in that. And our declaration is that we are innocent. We have not defiled the land. We have not polluted ourselves with the desire after things. Uh, and, by, and we make this statement to God. We make it regularly by showing up on Sunday, just as Judah would show up at the temple in Jerusalem and say, no, 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 I haven't done it. I haven't gone after the Baals because here I am at the temple on Saturday. So can't you see that I am a good Jewish person? And here I am in the city of God on Saturday as if God has no clue what you're doing Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. And God says, I see you. I have seen what you're doing. I see what your priorities are. I see what comes first in your life. I see what will always take precedence over your worship of me on a daily basis. Maybe not on that day, although sometimes it does interfere with that day. For them, Saturday. For us, Sunday. And it interferes there. But I see that your commitment is there and that that I know your ways. I know your heart. And we're going to get into the heart here very shortly. But again, over and over again, even while confronted with these arguments, while confronted with all the evidence, while God says, I have seen you. I see you on the mountains. I see you in the valleys. I have caught you in the act. You are worshiping Baals. You are prostrating yourself before the gods of this age that are not gods. You are participating in their acts of worship. You are engaging in it. Not only you, but your families with you and your women with you. Your children are being sacrificed. Uh, I see the true innocence that you are slaughtering in your guilt. And yet you declare over and over again, no, 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 I am not guilty. And we find it here in verse 23, and oh, there's nothing more infuriating than catching a child in the act of disobedience and saying, I didn't do it. I just saw you do it. How stupid do you think we are? And you just like to toss them. And yet, this is exactly what we do to God. This is what Judah is doing to God. No, I'm innocent. I didn't do it. It's repeated, by the way. That's because God is... One of the largest arguments was their denial of the truth. They're lying, essentially. They say they haven't polluted it, but yet they have, and everywhere they go, they claim that they haven't gone after them, and yet they can't control themselves from going after it. They are just totally immersed in it. It becomes a disease almost for them, but I hate to use that word because that word has removed responsibility. We have made sin diseases so that we're not 
culpable for them. We, we can, it's not our choice. It's just my disease. It's my genetics. It's my whatever. And, and, and so I, I, I'm not culpable. I'm not responsible. You, you, I, I can't help myself. So I don't like to use that idea, but the idea of disease that it is, that it is, taken hold of us in a, in almost an unseen manner and and it lives and and thrives within us because we've created an atmosphere for it that's perfectly suited for its multiplication in us is is the way I want to use disease that we brought it in and fostered it in verse 35 again God calls them to us as you say because I am innocent surely his anger will turn for me because you say, I have not sinned. I have to argue this case with you. So I have to sit here and parade this evidence in front of you. Why? Because you still claim innocence. You still claim that you're not guilty. You say, I'm not into that stuff. That's not who I am. It doesn't define me. And my question for us to really consider is, how do we measure your commitments? How do you measure your priorities? And I've given this some thought um, to try to understand a good measuring tool of priorities. When I was a teen, um, one of the things that our youth group did um, just about annually growing up in one of the youth groups I was in, this is in Virginia, uh, the part of our responsibility we were in a a ministry setting and so we had some accountability issues that our youth pastor wanted us to have while we were in the come alive singers and players and so because we were going into churches and ministering uh and christian schools and such uh and to our church as well um he wanted to make sure that we were uh not being hypocritical in it and so one of the ways he would do this is we would have to catalog our time. That what do you spend time on? And that told him what your priorities were. What you spent money on told him what your priorities were. And we would catalog some of these things. We'd have to track them for a little while. Um, and uh, we begin to realize right away that the things of this world take up a lot of our time take up a lot of our resources, take up a lot of our energies, and I recognize that we have to do certain things to live. We have to do certain things to pay the bills, and usually, the again, but if you don't go out on Black Friday, you have a lot fewer bills later. Um, we have to uh, have a livelihood of food, raiment, shelter, um, and so that takes up time. Um, but he begins to really, the real place he really started to press us is that um, let's take all your waking hours and start to examine them and show what you're really committed to. What really takes up your time? And that was one of the man, ways he wanted us to measure our priorities. And he says, God doesn't require you 51% to prove that you love him and want to serve him. Um, but he certainly anticipates a percentage. He anticipates uh, more than we think. And in the midst of studying the 
management or stewardship of our monies. Most of us ignore the management stewardship or other resources that I think God counts as more valuable. But look, let's consider finances because here we know the percentages, right? We all know we should tithe. And for us, that means 10%. Um, in Israel, it meant 22 and a third percent. I know how I got that. You can 22.5%, no, 20, 23%. There we go. Yeah, 23 and a third percent. And so we, we come to it and we think, well, I give God 10% of, of uh, my monetary resource. And so the question really that he presented was, are you even giving him 10% of your temporal resources? That is your, your time. Let me translate that out to you in a 24-hour day. Um, are you giving him two hours? What? Two hours a day. I didn't ask for 12 because you still have to live, move, breathe, sleep. You still have to eat. You still have to earn a living. You have to do all that. Um, let's just boil down to 10%. Let's just do a tithe of our day. Is a tithe of our day given to God? Not all at once necessarily, but throughout the day. From morning, when you get up to when you lie down, is a tithe of your day given to the Lord. Because it's certain that a large number of much, large amount of your day is given to things that we think are necessary for life. And the question is, have we spent two hours with our Lord? In his word, in prayer, in meditation, in consideration, we think nothing of sitting down to a two-hour movie and we have no problem staying awake for that and even avoiding using the bathroom for that period of time. Um, for about two hours. If I preach for two hours, I don't know. I think a lot of you would be out cold. I mean, I, it's hard to keep them going for one hour. Um, and we, But you see, we're much like Israel. We are sure that our priorities are right because we commit a portion of one day to the Lord, maybe a little bit on Wednesday night if you're participating in that program in ministry. Um, but when we look at it in measurable quantities, we begin to fall short. And what is the argument that God can present to you? What are you doing on the mountains and valleys? What are you doing during the week? And what are we engaged in that communicates what our priorities are? What is it that our heart longs for? We sing the songs uh, about our longing to praise God, to know Him better, uh, you know, we even have the song, As the deer panteth for the water brooks, so my soul panteth after thee. That is that I just have a thirst for God, a hunger for him. But the fact is that we can sometimes go days and not engage that and seek to feed that. And it has grown worse and worse as more Trinkets of our age consume more of our time and distract us from following after God.
think it's amazing that when they first came out, computers, were they told us, would save us lots of time. And what they were, which was the biggest lie of all, because what they really are, are they are consumers of our time. But our statement to God is, no, I'm innocent. I haven't sinned. I haven't polluted the land. I haven't defiled myself. And this is our condition, and God puts forth this thing, and it puts forth the evidence, and more evidence, and more evidence, and all for this purpose, not to just inflict guilt on us, but for the hope, the desire that you would respond. And we saw that last week, that the whole goal is that you would confess, that you would repent as we're going to get into chapter 3. And then in the middle of his argumentation, in the middle of this very strong statement of why all of this is necessary. Why is the book of Jeremiah necessary? Why is it so long? Why is it so repetitive? And why is it so deliberate? Well, it's that way because you are stubbornly clinging to the fact that you're innocent when you're guilty. And all of us are like that. We all have that in our hearts. I'm innocent. And you claim that before God. But the reality is, when the evidence is born and shown, we stand guilty. And in the midst of all of that guilt that God, that we displace, because we don't want to have, we don't want to feel those feelings, so I'm going to deny them. Uh, in the midst of all that, we forget why that guilt is so valuable. Why it is that God comes to us and confronts us with our with our covetousness and why Black Friday is such an appeal that, that we are going to lose sleep and food and, and family and everything for we'll even lose our minds and go out there and fight and start riots over junk um, that'll be in the yard sale this summer um, but we had to have it this November. Why? Well, God brings the guilt so that there can be forgiveness. He brings the guilt so that there will be a humbling. He brings the guilt so that there will be restoration. And as long as my children in my house clung to the lie, I didn't do it, no one was going to be happy. Because the lie itself became dirtier than the act. And so God not only rejected Israel, he also says, I reject your trusted allies. They're not going to help you. You go to Egypt, you go to Syria, they're not going to help you. I'm, I've rejected them. I've rejected everyone around you that in the midst of your re- denial of your guiltiness, claiming innocence when you don't have it, I'm going to take away all of the crutches in your life. They will none of them prosper, and you. I have to wait till you have broken down. In the midst of all this, we have this wonderful declaration in chapter 3. Why does God want you to be broken 
and guilty and know it and declare it and just let it out and acknowledge it. And in verse 3, interesting, or chapter 3, verse 1, he lays out another way of looking at defilement. He gives the example from the law that all of them know if a man divorces his wife, she goes from him, becomes another man's wife, can, she, can he return to her again? So if they get divorced, she goes out and becomes someone else's wife, and then he, oh, regrets it and says, I want her back. Uh, is that right? And in the law, that cannot be done. And uh, that is something God hates, divorce, and it's immorality. And they said, yeah, that would pollute the land. And God says, well, that would pollute the land. But here's the kind of God I am that you have gone out there and played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. I'm willing to do what you're unwilling to do and, and cannot do by the law, yet I am willing to do um, with response to you on a spiritual level that here you have given your hearts to others, things, to other people, to these false gods that are not gods, and you have done it in deplorable ways. And he rightly uses the, the description of harlotry. Um, that is certainly a part of it. And, and uh, then he comes and says, I... I'm ready to bring you back. All you have to do is repent. All you have to do is respond. You have been here and there, and he goes on and says you have the harlot's forehead. In other words, you're not willing to be ashamed. You just, you just, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. I've had young people say that to me over. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and, and you might say, oh, well, that's just because you're picky. Children say there's nothing wrong with that. Let me share with you some things children have told me there's nothing wrong with that. Children think there's nothing wrong with going on to pornographic sites on the Internet. I'm not talking about 18-year-old children. I'm talking about 10-year-old children. 12-year-old children. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not hurting anybody. I've had children tell me there's nothing wrong with them cursing out their parents. There's nothing wrong with that. They're mean. I've had children tell me that there's nothing wrong with stealing. You know why? Because they wanted it. And they were being, they wouldn't share. So I stole it. Yeah, that's where it's come to in our day. There's nothing wrong with that. It feels good. And this coming from the children I have access to are largely church children. There's nothing wrong with me sleeping around. It's fun. I enjoy it. So it can't be wrong. Older children by then. Unfortunately, not very much older. They refuse to be ashamed when they should have cried out to God and they pollute the land with wickedness. God says, as bad as that is, if you'll just turn to me, I'll take you back. I will receive you, but it's going to be not on your terms, it's going to be on my terms. And those are the terms that are going to be laid out in the book of Jeremiah 
what is genuine repentance going to look like? And because under Josiah, it's going to look like there's some genuine repentance, but it's not. It's not going to fulfill the requirements God has laid out here in the book of Jeremiah from front to back, as well as the other prophets. What does it genuinely look like? And when we begin to see it, the first facet of genuine repentance is genuine brokenness and recognition of sin. That is sin. That is wrong. There is something wrong with that. There is evil in that. It is, even though it feels good, it doesn't make it right. There is a right and a wrong, and there's, there's wrong there. And that is the beginning steps. And as long as we deny those, God says there's no coming back. But if you would simply go through the steps laid out here in the prophets, you would res- if you would respond with true repentance and the, and the acknowledgement, I'm ready to receive you. I'm ready to take you out of all the false gods that you've committed yourself to and destroyed yourself before. I'll take you back. I'm willing to do that. But you haven't taken the first step. The first step from, God, from God's perspective to restore a relationship with him is to say, this stuff's wrong. We're guilty. The very first step is, I'm guilty. We don't like that step. And because we don't like that step, we can't get any farther. And much like Israel, and, and Israel is going to be an example next week, uh, much like Israel, Judah then just won't take that next, they won't take the first step, so the next steps are not hardly relevant. Because we're in denial. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not doing anything wrong. Everyone else is doing it. There's the other one. Oh, boy. I, it's just our culture, Pastor. Come on. It's just cultural. I've heard that plenty of reasons why we can disobey pretty significant sections of God's word. It's just a cultural thing. Like, no, it's not a cultural thing. There's truth. God demands adherence to that. And your statement belies something in your heart, and that is that your statement to God is, I have not sinned. I am innocent. I have not defiled the land. I have not gone after the world. I am not polluted. And God says, you say these things even when it's not even a secret that you do them. Verse 34 describes in chapter 2. Verse 34 of chapter 2, I'm back up a little bit. It says, your skirts, also in your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the pure, poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but plainly on all these things. It wasn't hidden. God didn't have to launch an investigation and put undercover officers around to find this stuff. It was open and blatant. So don't think that denial goes away once we are confronted with open evidence and it's just obvious. The obviousness of the sin does not equal a willingness in the heart to acknowledge it and to confess it as such. Here was open sin. They were, oh, And by the way, the sin they're committing here, 
when they talk about the wicked, uh, the wicked women, on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of poor innocents. The poor innocents they're talking about are their babies. Here they are sacrificing babies. The true innocent people. Why? So they can pursue the gods of this world. Sound familiar? I'm going to sacrifice, and whether it's abortion and, and infanticide and all of that, or whether it is simply I'm going to give away my kids or just not parent them because I want to pursue my own interests and children get in the way of that, so I'm not going to have any children. And that comes into the whole idea of, of, of planning our parenthood, when I'm pretty sure God says that's his job, one of the top three things that God says, I will do, I'll take care of that, and yet we have supplanted him, because much like Judah, we have said we are lords. We are lords of our life. We don't need you to be lord of our life. We're to control our children, whether we have them or not, and when we have them, and what order, and whether they're male or female, and we're going to control all of that. We're going to take those things into our hands that belong to you, and including who's going to be the king. We're going to do that. We will be the lords. And it's open, and we're, and we're preaching it, and we're declaring it, and yet then we turn around to God and say, oh, we're innocent. Oh, we love you. Oh, we love you, Lord. Yeah, I, I love you, Jesus. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. If I say I love Jesus enough, I can claim innocence over the hideous sins I'm committing with the world, the world's way, in front of the world, openly and obviously. Without any shame. And yet, in the midst of all that, God says, I'll take you back. I'll take you back. If you begin the road to true repentance, which is, number one, acknowledge your sin. Come to God and say, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. And I want it out of my life. We have some in my family that wear these little bracelets that tell them how many steps they've taken, which is not quite true because it really tells them how many times their arm has swung a certain direction. Um, and they're being tracked. So that they can measure progress and compete with each other over who's fit, more fit. And they can uh, maybe do a little bit more than they have done to be more fit. It may be time that we recognize there's a need in our life for a spiritual Fitbit. Are you tracking your desires of your heart? And to start counting off. 
well, that's like the world. That's like the, that, that's what the world wants. That's what the world wants. That's what the world wants. This is what God wants. What am I doing? Although we would count the steps of our lives in those terms. And maybe it might take a month, 40 days of you sitting down every evening or every morning and laying out your schedule of the day or considering what you've done that day and count up. What have I really done in terms of my relationship with the Lord this day? That I can assess myself and say, am I following after the things of this world? Am I claiming an innocence that I don't possess? Am I refusing to be ashamed of going after the world? Am I invoking the anger of God while I claim to be serving him? You see, once we get to the point of acknowledging sin and referencing it as such and recognizing it as such, even open things that everybody does because it's American, and then we figure out that that's not very godly. And here we are flaunting it as though us making our own choices about matters that God said are his choices um, is sin. And instead of flaunting that and promoting it in churches, we ought to be decrying it. That we are careful to take what is the second step. And I we're not going to spend nearly as much time on the second step once we've acknowledged our sin is to follow verse 4 of chapter 3. Will you not from this time cry to me, my Father, you are the guide of my youth? Will you remain angry forever? Will you keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you are able. Their belief was that God wouldn't stay angry with them. They didn't have to change. As a nation or as individuals. That simply they could rely upon their history with God. They call him Father. They call him their guide from their younger years. And they're sure that God will not stay angry forever to the very end. But God's reference to this at the end of verse 5 is, you have spoken and done evil things as you were able. You were doing all of this. And again, he calls you, you need to come to me. Not sit there and just say, well, you know, I got it covered because I got saved and baptized back when I was a kid. You know, my parents got that base taken care of. I got heaven secure for me. And so... When it comes to sin, um, you know, my sins are passed away. I know. Why do I know it? Oh, because I got saved and baptized. So I'm going to sit here and he's the father. I I love Jesus. I love Jesus, so I'm going to sit here. And he won't stay angry with me forever because I'm his child. Come on, how many times do we hear that? 
oh, you're a child of God. God loves you. He can't stay angry with you. He's my... I believed in him back then, so I got that covered, so his anger can't ever be poured out on me. And I'm going to sit back here and relax spiritually and do nothing. And God says, is there any more ways for you to sin? You're sinning everywhere you can. He said, no. What you need to do is to come to me. That we acknowledge our sin and then we come to the Savior. We acknowledge that we have violated it and we don't come based upon the old decisions or commitments we had made or the old declarations we have made. We come to them fresh. We come to them recognizing that the old vows, I have been in violation of them. I am breaking the old covenants I am violating the marital vows between me and my husband, between the church and her groom, the bride and the groom. I have been the one violating that. And I can't just sit here and say, oh, he can't get rid of me because he's going to be faithful to his vows. It's God. He's going to be faithful. He made a vow, and I said I do back then, and so I can just live however I want in whatever immoral way I want, and he's going to keep me. And that's the attitude of so many. No, what God says is come to me. Because you've already vowed your life to others, now you're going to have to break that vow and come back and in a newness vow yourself to me. And this is something that we're going to have to explore a lot more next week when we talk about what, what is backsliding. Because he's going to use that term in chapter 3 extensively, and, we, and it's meant something different today. Um, and we have uh, broken down the Christian life in these compartments, and there's a danger there, because we think if we got one compartment done, that we're okay, and we can just work our way down this. And if we backslide, we just have to back up to this compartment. Uh, that we that never went away. But the fact is, in God's word, when he uses that, he is saying there's a great danger that we talked about last week. And so he says, you need to come to me. If you will come, return to me, says the Lord, I'll receive you. But you have to return to me. Not just to the God of your youth, but you have to turn to me in a new relationship, in a newness of a, of a recommitment of your ways to his ways. So that there's a genuineness of your repentance, that there's a, a true sorrow for your sin and a true desire to renew a relationship with him, that there is going to be this new heart, a clean heart, that there's going to be a right spirit within me, that I'm going to strive there from this point henceforth and I use an illustration with young people about where's your stake in the ground? Where is your decision point? And, and i got to tell you, in my life, there's several decision points that I look back at. And I could say, well, I got saved at the age of 10 at, at Bass Lake Camp. But the fact is that there's been many decision points in my life where I made a determination 
from this point, that will never be in my life again. That will not be who I am anymore. And every one of the decision points, I am glad to say, is me turning away from the world a little bit more, a little bit more, and a little bit more. That's not going to be in my life. I wish it all happened when I was 10. (laughs) I really do. I wish that I had fully given myself to God at 10 years old, and I had not served the gods of this age in any way since then, in the last 43 years. I wish I could say that, but that's not how it went. And as I matured in the Lord, I recognized that can't be in my life. That can't be in my life. And some of those I made very young. Some of those are in my teens and in my 20s, and that can't be in my life. I can't call myself a child. Some of those have been in the last two years. That can't be in my life. That, I can't call that being godly when it's being godless. We eradicate God and then we say we're godly in doing it because we're supplanting him and wanting to say we're the Lord's. And so the calling here of God is that we renew, not just lean on that old decision way back there when I was a youth, but that we renew our commitment to God. That we have a new vow that is maybe built on that, but it is a a much more developed and mature declaration that we have truly come to him brokenhearted and recognizing I have gone after the gods of this age, and, and it was wrong. And I chased after them for 30 years, calling myself a Christian and in your service. And all that time, this was in my life. And this is evidence that we are moving in a right relationship with him, that we are, as he asks us, return to me. Return to me. You turned to me once, now return to me. Do it again. With full heart, broken heart, and repentance like you did back then. Don't depend on back then. And think that I'm never going to be angry of you because of back then. The question is, today, is your heart new towards me? Have you turned towards me today, returned to him today? This is how we avoid the wrath of the Father, is by turning today. Not just saying, well, back 30, 40 years ago, I prayed that prayer, I got dunked in a tank of water, making this declaration. There are way too many people that are going to be suffering eternity in punishment, I'm convinced, who made the same claim of Israel. Oh, he led me when I was a youth. He can't be angry at me. God says that's an evil thing to speak and to do. Maybe as evil as you could. I don't know if you're able to do much more evil 
than to think that you can live however you please and I have to not be angry at you. This is not a relationship between a God and his people. So I call you and invite you again to respond to the argument of God that's on your conscience that we renew the right spirit in us. He's helping you. How? Guilt. (laughs) And his word through his prophets to guide us into what it means to truly transform our hearts. Not in pretense, as we're going to see next week, but genuinely. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word. And we pray that you might find us tenderhearted, willing to acknowledge our guilt where it stands. Though everyone else around us, even our favorite personalities that call themselves Christian say you're not guilty. Lord, we know that that one voice in the wilderness of your spirit to convict us that your word is truth, that we stand condemned there and not by public opinion. Though the world say it right and you declare it wrong, we will walk by your declaration and confess it and come to you and return. Repent again. Turn anew to you. Lord, give us such a heart. As we study in your word, we thank you so much for your mercy. For we recognize that we have no right to demand this of you when we have gone after the gods of this age. So it is upon your mercy and your grace that we call. Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.